Perhaps the most controversial topic of discussion in our day revolves around truth. Opinions often blur the lines of an objective truth. Streaming platforms, social media, and other mediums allow individuals to project their truths upon the masses like never before. In the midst of woke, cancel culture, religious freedoms, political liberties, social injustice, we attempt to search for and reveal the truth. This is Truth Revival. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Roman Hamilton. Paul and I are going to be resuming our discussion that we had with Mike Nelson in episode 10, except today we're going to be talking about the kingdom mission. This is episode 12. If you like this episode, be sure to like and subscribe to the show. Also, follow us on Facebook at Truth Revival 37385. We hope you enjoy. One of the earlier episodes, we talked about there being 4.5 billion lost people in the world. That's a big number. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Right? And I pulled up some figures from the International Mission Board. Right now, there are over 3,600 field personnel, field missionaries out there laboring in various countries now mike we had talked about an open country versus a closed country can you elaborate on that yeah a closed a closed country is a country in which you're not free to go out and share the gospel like you can't do street evangelism you couldn't held open air you know services or revivals so what happens if an individual shares the gospel in a closed country well usually they get arrested and thrown in jail or even even killed in Muslim countries, for an example, uh, you can be put to death for converting Muslims to Christianity. Um, so, I mean, it can be it can be life threatening. So, in closed countries, you know, it, you got to you got to do things differently than you do in open countries. Um, for example, India, I could not go over to India and walk up and down the street with an evangel cube sharing the gospel. I'd be arrested. It's li- literally against the law. Now, I am told that. It, it's, it's also kind of governed state by state. Some states in India are more lenient than other states in India are, but the official policy of the country is it's illegal unless you're an Indian to share the gospel on the streets, okay? So in India, you would have to do things differently than you would in an open country uh, where there is no prohibition against sharing the gospel, like Zambia, where, where I'm working right now. Um, there's no prohibition to sharing the gospel there, um, so I'm free to to walk up to somebody and start talking to them about Christ. I don't have to worry about being arrested and thrown in jail. So you're going to do things a little bit differently. In closed countries, you're going to have to do things kind of on the down low, and yeah. you're going to have to be a part of that community. You, you may have to have a job there and work in that culture and develop friendships and and have you know Bible studies in people's homes and do things more on a down low kind of uh, approach where um, you're not going to do things in the open air and, and have big uh, revivals and stuff. Uh, whereas in an open country, you're free to do whatever you want to do. That, 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 that's the main difference. I was going to ask you about that because uh, I lived in another county years back, and, and that pastor that I attended the church with there, I went on several mission trips with him. And I remember he, was, he went to Africa, and he had gotten into the country there. And, and his big thing was they took like, Fifteen to twenty thousand dollars worth of rice they delivered at a time to help feed. I remember he got 
to the one area and he had delivered part of the rice and he was taking the rice to the, to the next town or whatever community, however they describe that over there, but they wouldn't let him in and they, they threatened to kill him, you know, and they wouldn't let him take the rice. And, and somehow they met somebody, like you said, underground and they got the rice smuggled in and they got it done. But I was going to ask you about that. Once you get into like an open country, are there sections in that open country that are closed to you? Well, usually not because, but again, every country, you'd have to look at each, each country individually. Uh, I can speak to the two countries that I've worked in. In Tanzania, um, their constitution supports the freedom of religion. Even though there is a, uh, in certain areas of the country, heavily Muslim area populations that are harder to try to evangelize in. And every now and then, the Muslims will even try to um, attack the, the Christian locals. They usually don't mess with 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 uh, foreigners because they know that affects their economy too much, right. you know, because of tourism is a big deal in Tanzania. So if, if they don't, um, if they don't protect the, the Europeans that come over there, they'll quit coming. So they're, they're really strict about that. But when you're in a Muslim community controlled by Muslims and you convert from Islam to Christianity, it's a big deal. You have the possibility of losing your job, losing your house, losing your family. Uh, it can be a really big deal. It's not just like coming down an uh, aisle of a church and, and praying a prayer and going out and nothing, you know, there's no threat to you. I mean, these are people that are literally. It's make, life or death. But that's the way it is there. And uh, so there's pockets in, in Tanzania that you might have some, some issues with. But the country as a whole and its constitution supports the freedom of religion. Uh, same thing in Zambia, where I'm working now. Um, so in those free country, in those open countries, there's no really no limitation to what um, you know what you're able to do as far as spreading the gospel. I want to share. I want to do a quick uh, drop some more fun facts on everybody. There are over eleven thousand nine hundred people groups across the world. You're like, well, what is a people group? Well, the International Mission Board describes a people group as an ethno-linguistic group of people with a common self-identity that is shared by various members. So not 11,000 nations or countries, but people groups. There's 11,900 people groups with over 7.9 billion people in the world. 3,105 of those people groups have been unreached the gospel hasn't impacted those areas so why is missions important and i've heard people say this time and time again the lord's coming back soon we've all heard that things are getting so bad god jesus has got to be coming back soon well jesus gave us something in matthew 24 14 he said and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. I've heard it said before, and Mike, you can clarify, the gospel has to be preached in all nations before Christ will return. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I, I disagree with you because uh, to contextually, that passage that you just read is speaking about the tribulation period. Um, the, the rapture of the church has already taken place. Jesus is describing in, on the Ovalette Discourse what, what life is going to be like during the seven-year tribulation period there. Uh, so the rapture of the church has already taken place. But during that seven-year tribulation period, he's going to have 
um, the 144,000 that become his soul winning army that, he, that are going to take the gospel to the other, to all around the world. But that's speaking to, um, to what's going to happen during the tribulation period. What we live in the church age today, where the whole purpose of the church age is to build the body of Christ, to build the church. Uh, remember, we're talking about the church universal now. Uh, Everybody that's a true believer in Jesus Christ is a member of the church universal. We're a part of the bride of Christ, right? Now, we should also be a member of a local church, right, uh, where we can serve and, and be active in community. But every true born-again believer in Jesus is a member of the church universal. And our job right now is to build the church, is to grow the church of Jesus Christ to the maximum extent possible because nothing brings God more glory. The way we bring God I get back to what I was going to say a while ago, and I and I kind of got sidetracked. Why did Jesus say what he said in Luke? I mean, in Acts one eight before he went back to heaven, he could have said anything. He could have given any issue, any command, or any instruction to his church. But the last thing he said to his church before he went to heaven was, "Go be witnesses of me." Why did he? Why did he say that instead of something else? Because nothing brings Christ more glory than when we share the gospel. Worship on Sunday morning is great. It glorifies God, but it doesn't glorify God to the degree that when we share the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, if we talk about the attributes of God, what does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God means to, uh, to, to help people understand his character, his attributes. It's, 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 it's to, um, to make known who he is, right? His character is uh, to praise him, to, uh, to help people understand who he is. Well, I believe there's two great attributes of God, and all the other attributes of God fall under those two. And those two attributes of God are is that God is holy, and the other great attribute of God is God is love. And all the other attributes fall under those two categories. Why is God omniscient? Why is God all-knowing? Why is God all-powerful? Why is God all-present? Well, if God wasn't all-knowing, he might make a mistake. And if he made a mistake, he would cease to be holy. Why is God all-powerful? Well, if, if he wasn't all-powerful, somebody could force him to, to sin, which would make him unholy, and he would cease to be God. Why is God omnipresent? Because God has to be everywhere and know everything, or he might miss something, and that would mean he's not a perfect being. He's not holy, okay? Um, so all those attributes fall under the fact that he's holy. Why does God have to judge sin? Because he's holy, right? He can't let sin go unpunished. But God's also love, and that's all the attributes we think of like grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and all the warm and fuzzy things that we think about God fall under that category, right? God is love. But if you think about it, if you, if, if you boil it down to the fact that God has these two main attributes, he's holy, which means he has to punish sin, but he's love, which means he wants to forgive sin. Well, how does God reconcile those two things without violating those two things? How does God forgive us of our sin without violating his holiness? And how does God punish us for our sin without violating his love for us and his desire to forgive us? Well, the answer is the cross. The cross is the cosmic intersection of the two main attributes of God. Mm, that's good. Right? The cross is where God's holiness and God's love collided. The cross is where God is pouring out his wrath against sin. 
Sin is being paid for. The punishment of sin, the payment of sin is being paid for on the cross by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? Mm-hmm. God is pouring out his holy wrath against sin on the cross. But he's also pouring out his amazing love for us because he's allowing his son to die in our place. Yeah. Okay? Instead of making me die on that cross to pay for my sin, he's allowing his son to die for me. What greater act of love can there be? Because love is defined as unselfish sacrifice, right? So when we share the gospel message, which is the message of the cross, there's no greater way we can describe and, and declare the glory of God than through the gospel message. Because it's through the gospel message we see the holiness of God and the love of God in its strongest, most powerful example that's ever been provided. That's why it's so important that we stay focused on on what the Great Commission's about. What I have seen, unfortunately, over and over, Roman, is churches, instead of doing church planting, they do ministry. And they put ministry in the place of missions. Okay? They'll go to a foreign country and build a well, dig a well, or build an orphanage, and those things are good in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with digging a well. Nothing wrong with building an orphanage. But it's not the Great Commission. Okay? We are sitting here today having this podcast because of church planting. Paul started it, and other missionaries after him picked it up. It eventually made to England. England eventually came to this country, started this country, and we're sitting here today because of church planters. Okay, You and I have been saved and, and have this ministry because somebody understood the Great Commission meant we need to go start new churches. We need to plant churches. I started to say this a minute ago. You've got three boys, right? If those three boys quit growing, okay, what would you do? You'd have them at every doctor you could get them to. Be concerned, yeah. Why aren't they growing? Why aren't they maturing? And usually in the, in the animal world, we, we, we declare an animal physically mature when it's capable of reproducing. Well, why don't we do that with Christians? God wants every Christian to reach spiritual maturity. Well, when does a Christian reach spiritual maturity? When he is able to reproduce. reproduce. Well, how many Christians ever reproduce themselves spiritually? Okay? And that's the problem. We got thousands of people sitting in pews that never reach spiritual maturity and never reproduce themselves. God doesn't want just spiritual reproduction. He wants the ones you've reproduced yourself, he wants that to turn into spiritual multiplication. Mm-hmm. The inverse pyramid, right? That's why Jesus spent his whole ministry pouring into 12 people. But he knew what those 12 people were going to accomplish. I think the broader version... Of, of what you're saying, Mike, is, I mean, I've listened to everything you said, and I've soaked it up, and I agree with you 100%. It boils down to one thing. He's preaching kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Our churches don't understand what it takes to make disciples. This guy has, has spewed things out of his heart and out of his soul today that I've never even known or thought about. I told you he was good. I have to agree with him because here's the deal. A lot of people don't know this about our area, but our area, you know, in Appalachia here is, is ultimately, uh, you know, back in the day was super poor. There was nothing here. 
And you take the ball play community here. The ball play community and all the churches in ball play community were birthed from missionaries from the north in the 60s. So I am a product of mission work because where I grew up and learned the gospel and learned my path was from mission work. Let me go a little deeper. I would not have my son if it wasn't for mission work. I wouldn't have my seed that I've tried to train to to go forth and present the gospel that Jesus came, died, rose again, and he's coming back for you. I would not have my son if it wasn't for mission work. Now, did everything in that whole situation turn out the way everybody thinks the beautiful, perfect picture would? No, it did not. But if it was not for mission work, I would not have my son. And before the foundation of the earth was was even laid, God said, this is going to be your son. This is going to be your seed. I'm going to give him to you. You're going to put me in him, in his mind, in his brain, in his thoughts, and in his coming and going. You're going to teach him about me so he can teach others about him and grow my kingdom. What church do you pastor, brother? We need to get you in a pulpit somewhere. <laughs> I've said it. I've been saying it. Woo. Oh, Mr. Nationwide. That, that'll preach right there, brother. Yeah. That'll preach. But it's the truth. Yep. It's the truth. God help me and every other man that sits out here. This stuff is vital. You said something at lunch that I'll never forget that I'm going to take with me from this day forward. If I don't believe in what I'm selling, why am I selling it? If I don't believe that Jesus resurrected me, that he healed me, that he cured me, that he blesses me, that he loves me, that he forgives me, that he puts grace all over me. Why do I sell that? And here's the deal. Everybody wants a piece of the goods. Everybody wants to grab a piece and buy a piece, but nobody wants to sell it. Everybody wants to be forgiven. Everybody wants to talk about the king, but nobody wants to talk about the kingdom. Nobody wants to sacrifice about the kingdom. Nobody wants to actually get on the plane and go because it, it, it takes away from their agenda. Mm-hmm. Because when the kingdom is the agenda, we will go where we go. Was it helpful for me to go overseas on two mission trips? Was it difficult? Yes, it was. But it was great. Was it difficult for me to go to Detroit on a mission trip? It was the most god-awful place I've ever been in my life. Mm. They treated me lower than well done. I promise you, it was horrible. Paul's getting all worked up, folks. We're going to take a little bit of a break. This is episode 12. Support our sponsors We'll be right back after this. Hey, Paul, after a long day of work, you're tired, Heather's tired, or maybe even after church on Sunday afternoon, everybody's got to eat. So where are you going? I'm going down to see Juan and the family at Senor Lopez, 105 Mecca Pike, Teleco Plains, Tennessee, where the food is fresh and the family is welcome. Come home for dinner at Senor Lopez. And we're back. Paul, tell us how you really feel about Detroit. Give us the truth. Let me tell you about what happened on our mission trip to Detroit. We spent all this money, Mike, to go to Detroit. We rented this big civic center at a hotel. We rented all this, and we took a praise band. We, We flew, and we took a van, and we took all our music stuff, and we got ready to do this big thing. We went door to door. 
in the blazing 100-degree heat of Detroit in the summertime. It was awful. Got offered water one time by someone who was from Knoxville. The rest of them sucked their dog on you, told you to get out of here, cussed you, GD this, GD that. We don't want to hear what you're blah, 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 selling. The first night, two people came to our meeting. And everybody said, oh, this is horrible. Oh, all this money we've wasted. This mission trip's horrible, blah, blah, blah. The next night, listen to this. Four people showed up. We sang, preached the word. Now, listen, this pastor that I was involved with, he was, he was like Mike, man. He lived for mission work. End of the service, dude and his whole family come to the altar. Four people, man, wife, and two kids. This is why missions is so powerful, Mike. After it was over, the guy asked for the microphone. He said, when y'all knocked on my door, I was in the garage with a gun in my mouth. And my son came to the garage and said, Daddy, there's somebody at the door. If you hadn't came and you hadn't knocked on the door, I would be in hell. My wife would have no husband and my kids would have no father. But because you came, because you went, I've got another chance at life. Amen. He gave his life to Jesus that night. All that money, all that time, all that headache, all that disappointment because there wasn't a big crowd. Four people gave their life to Jesus that night. Just for one. Just for one. And yeah. I mean, the fact that the dude was in the garage with a gun in his mouth fixing to end it all, that lets you know that 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 whoever put that on and God spoke to them to do that, hey, we were meant to be there for such a time as that. Right. And uh, hey, man, I, it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. So we as believers have been called and commanded to make disciples. It's the same yeah. four-step process whether it's local, national, or international, okay? I think it's the same four-step process. That's the issue. You got Step one, evangelism and the power of the Holy Spirit. You go out prayed up, confessed up, and worshiped up, walking in his will and his obedience, okay, and, and uh, go out and witness to people, win people to Christ, bring them together, and set the example before them, okay? Teach them to imitate you. Once they start imitating you, tell them now, go teach others, do the same thing. So you got to have the processes and the procedures and the, and the ministries in your church to train that, okay? Because that whole setting the example part is the key. Once you win them to Christ, you got to bring them in and set the example before them. That means you gotta, you got to teach them. you gotta, uh, you got to show them what to do, okay? It's not just do as I say, it's do as you see me do. That's the process. Yeah. And it starts, Roman, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not... You know, you know, I don't step on any toes, but it begins with the pulpit. It begins with the pastor. The pastor is the leader of the church, and the people of that church are going to do what they see their pastor do. That's why I tell these pastors when I train them, in, in, uh, in, in, when I'm planting churches in Zambia, every pastor before we plant a church with them receives 185 hours of training. Okay, 121 of that is done through a, a curriculum that we give them that they go to school for six weeks to complete. And at the end of that 121 hours, I go over and I give them another 64 hours of training. We meet for eight hours a day for eight days. And I 
cram. When I see blood coming out of their ears, I quit talking, okay? So I cram all this into them. And one of the, I teach them that it, it begins with them. Their church is only going to do what they see them do. So if they want their church involved in all five functions of the church, that pastor's got to be involved in all five functions of the church. If they want, if that pastor wants his people to produce all three types of spiritual fruit, he has to be producing all three types of spiritual fruit. Okay, otherwise it's not because they're going to do whatever they see their pastor do. It begins with leadership. Now, here's a stat, sad statistic, and I'm trying to remember this, but I believe it's true. Uh, I may may be wrong. According to Dr. Roy Fish, who is my evangelism professor in seminary, ninety percent of Southern Baptist pastors have evangelized, have witnessed to no one outside of the pulpit in the last six months. Besides what they do on Sunday morning from the pulpit, have done nothing to evangelize anybody in the last six months. Wow. Okay? Because, see, we've gotten to where we think the pulpit is our evangelism tool. Mm. Okay? Listen, lost people are out there. Most lost people aren't in the church. You might have a few lost people in your congregation, but the lost people are out there, okay? Mm-hmm. You're preaching to the choir most of the time in church, right? Okay, now, and your job mainly as a pastor is to teach them the countenance of God's word so they can walk in the, in the will of God in accordance to the word of God so they can manifest the fruit of the spirit of God, right? Let me, and be effective outside the church. Let me say this, Mike, and you can agree or disagree with me. I've heard many, many pastors. I have a great relationship with a lot of pastors around here. But just about every one of them, they share this sentiment. They say, pray that someone will get saved today. And they're praying for someone to receive Christ today. That's great. But like you said, in a congregation, I see the same people every week. I think I just about everybody in my church is saved. You know, we're not going to see anybody saved in church unless somebody new comes in. And so I said this in one of our earlier podcasts, that the primary work of the church is not for evangelism, but for discipleship, to train and and to equip the body to then go out and share the love of Christ, to evangelize in the community or to, you know, compel them to come. The fields are white and ready for harvest, you know, but the laborers are few. Would you agree or disagree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's critical. I, if you want your altars busy on Sunday, your people have to be out Monday through Saturday. That's good. Okay, that's true. Or you're not going to have any 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 business on your altar on Sunday. Okay. And and what I've seen when when I pastored, the first thing I did at every church I ever pastored was I implemented an evangelism program, an outreach program, where we we organized our church into into teams, and we had a team that went out every weekend, inviting people to come to church. Now, sometimes nobody, we would have no fruit from that, but yet we would have visitors show up every Sunday because God honored our obedience. Think about what's happening now, Roman. Instead of planting churches, we have these satellite churches. What are satellite churches? I'm going to let you go on that so because <laughs> you're wanting to go somewhere. Well, I'm just saying. I mean, a satellite church is a church that they have their own campus, but they're not an autonomous church, right? They're still under the control of the main, one, one main, main, main church. They usually pump the video feed in 
uh, on Sunday mornings of the sermon from that main church. The attendance of that church counts in the attendance of the main church. The tithes of that church is all grouped together in the tithes of all that church. Well, why doesn't that church just cut that campus loose and let them be an autonomous independent church? Control. I could think of a couple other words, but, um, you know. Manipulation. Pride. Money. Greed. Power. I would. That's one side of the coin, but. I know several friends who attend satellite churches. I don't want to think that they're all evil. I, I think that I didn't say they're evil, Roman, but a lot of those Jesus Jesus shows for, up. Jesus shows up and walks into a church and their big video screen and the pastor, you know, you got a 3D pastor there preaching a sermon. Well, God's word won't return void. So the authenticity of it may not be something that's traditional. But the effectiveness of it, if if that church is producing fruit, if they have a discipleship plan, whatever their strategy is within that church. Mike, I know some churches who right now have a pastor, and they're dead. They're dead. So the, the, the dynamics of church, this is one thing that I've learned through COVID, and I know you've got some thoughts on COVID, but traditional church has to change. Traditional church is not always scriptural church. Just like you said, we've got to get back to the word of God. Allow the word of God to govern what we do within within the church, but our church must have a strategy for how we advance the kingdom of God. And Mike, you're one of those guys who specialize in missions. There are some who've been called to be evangelists. There's some who've been called to be pastors and prophets and teachers there are some people who just have a gift and mike you're one of those men who who have a gift and i know that as a pastor at poplar bluff we're a missionary Baptist church we want to support you we want to we want to help you we want to be partners with you mike is there a way that people can can reach you on facebook or social media or yeah, absolutely. I have both a Facebook have a page website? and a website. And my website is www.epicmissions. With two Ps. Two Ps. E-P-P-I-C-M-I-S-S-I-O-N-S. And I'll put a link also in the description. Yeah. Epicmissions.org uh, is our website. Uh, we are a ministry that's focused on church planting. Our vision as a ministry is to see a spiritually healthy New Testament church in every village around the world. Our mission as a ministry is to glorify Christ by equipping local national pastors and then mobilizing short-term mission teams to assist them in planting new indigenous churches. So our whole goal is to train pastors and help them plant churches in villages where there are no churches. And I know as a Southern Baptist myself, I got to be careful because I um, could end up having a, a cross burning in my front yard or something, but uh, a CD burning, yeah, CD <laughs> the which doctors come again. And I think, but I think one of the, one of the adverse qualities or the one of the the negative things about um, the cooperative program in the Southern Baptist world is it gives the average Baptist an excuse not to get personally involved. I agree. Oh, I give my money to the cooperative program. That's I what give, the cooperative and I'm program good. is for. Okay. I you know I give my tithes, my tithes and, I'm good. and my tithes goes part of that goes to the cooperative program and they're sending missionaries out there and it's their job to to, you know, to plant those churches and win those people to Christ, and I'm doing my part, okay? Well, 
the cooperative program does not excuse the individual believer from being actively involved in the Great Commission. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean everybody needs to go overseas is what you're nope. talking about. Nope. But we should all be actively serving in missions to make disciples outside right. the church. So many times we're only focused internally, but Christ said, go. Well, or we're focused, you will say, why do I need to go to Zambia when there's people right here in my own community? And believe me, I understand that. Uh, as I shared with you at lunch, as a pastor, I kn- I worked hard for, f- for six years trying to win my own community for Christ in Richardson, Texas. But we need to look out there, as Dr. Black, Dr. Blackaby once said, look where God is working and go and seek to join him in his work. And if we do that, we'll be successful. We'll be productive Christians, okay? Um, you know, you, it, you can go and you can plow an arid, dry field, and you're not going to get anything out of your labor, but you can go do that. Or you can look where God is doing a work and join in there and, and reap a great harvest. So without neglecting your requirement to reach your own backyard, we need to look around and say, where is God working? Where is God moving? Because I'm telling you, God is moving in places around the world. Mm -hmm. He may not be moving as much in America as he has in the past, and I don't believe he is. And I think it's because America is, is slowly turning its back on God, okay? But the point is, we don't want to neglect our own backyard. But at the same time, we need to look out and say, where is God working? I'll give you an example. Um, I just came back from Zambia. I came back from a place called Sowazi, Zambia. We were supposed to go there June last year, but COVID hit and we weren't able to go. Okay. But we, we, I'd gone there in November of 2019 to establish my ministry in that country. And we were going to do our first campaign there. Uh, so I, I met a national leader. Uh, he helped me organize there. We, we went to a place called Swayze where we gathered some pastors together that felt a calling from God to plant churches in remote villages around that area. We got those pastors enrolled in school. They went through six months of training. Um, and then, uh, you know, COVID hit and we had to delay a year. But then I went over there and finished their training and took a team of six, six, six Americans, just six U.S. missionaries. And we augmented ourselves with seven national missionaries. And we helped, after giving those pastors 185 hours of training, we spent six days on the mission field helping them start 20 new churches. Okay, We spent um, three days at each church. So we had 10 teams that went out and spent three days at the first 10 churches, and then we had then those 10 teams went and spent three days at the second set of 10 churches. Doing evangelism, helping win new people to Christ so we could start the discipleship process in these new churches. In six days. Now, we had a Jesus film. We also implemented a Jesus film, and we had a sports ministry that we also used. But through those 10 teams, the Jesus film and the sports ministry, in six days, six days, we shared the gospel, a clear, complete gospel presentation to 10,877 people. Now, Roman, are you ready for this? 6,414 of those people prayed to receive Christ. 6,414 people. In six days, with six U.S. missionaries, augmented by seven national missionaries. You know, Mike, whenever I took a trip to Brazil, to Rio, we were warned by our mission coordinator that locals 
had no problem accepting a new God because they already had multi-beliefs and they would just take, it was like they, they had all their gods on a shelf. They didn't have any problem just taking, oh, well, Jesus wants to be my God. I'll just put him right on the shelf next to all these other different beliefs. And they said, we need to stress that Christ is the only way that you could forsake all others and repent and turn to him. Is that something that's common over in Africa or do, do these people have a belief or or they or are they just saying, well, you know what, I'll just I'm gonna make a profession of faith and I'll just take Christ and put him on the shelf with all my other gods, or are they saying I'm gonna forsake everything else, I'm gonna follow after Jesus? Well, the presentation we give them clearly states, I mean, one of the one of the scenes and one of the verses is we go over John 14, 6 in excruciating detail. That Jesus is not a way, but he's the one and only way. Yeah. Okay. That there is no other way to salvation. And and Acts four twelve uh, emphasizes that as well. So, you know, John fourteen six, Acts four twelve are just two of the verses we use in our presentation when we share the gospel. But the thing is, these six thousand four hundred fourteen salvations were all linked to a church plant, and every one of those church plants has a pastor that's gone through one hundred eighty five hours of training. That pastor has been given a full Bible. He's been given a hundred New Testaments that he can use to disciple those new believers in that church plant. He was given. Each of those pastors was given 39 weeks of discipleship curriculum already printed in lessons for him, 39 weeks worth of lessons. So he doesn't have to try to figure out, how am I going to disciple these new believers? He's got a discipleship program given to him. All he has to do is teach it, okay? So he's been given a Bible. He's been taught. He's been given scripture to give to others. He's been given a discipleship curriculum. And then we monitor and track them for two years. He reports, every one of those churches will report their status to my ministry for the next 24 months. And I'll track for 24 months their attendance, the professions of faith, baptisms. Now, these are their, the people they lead to Christ, right? The number of people they lead to Christ, the number of people they baptize, the number of cell groups they start, okay? And at the end of the two-year cycle, well, at six months, I send my national director back to visit those pastors. Why do I do that? Because I follow the biblical model. What did Paul do? After Paul planted a church, he would go what? Go back and check on that church. Okay? Or so, write him a letter. Yeah. So at six months, I send my national director back to visit those church. At 12 months, he goes back for a second visit to visit the stat and get an update on those churches. And then at the end of the two-year cycle, I go back myself and get a final report on the status of these churches. Okay? And that's when I find out how many second-generation churches have been produced. Because, see, we just, we just did spiritual reproduction by creating 20 new churches, right? But we don't want to stop with spiritual reproduction. We want spiritual multiplication. We want those churches to end up planting churches, okay? So at the end of the two-year cycle, we go back to see how many of those churches have grown to the point where they've been able to now send a pastor out to start a new church. And like we saw in Tanzania, uh, the first 140 churches that we planted at the end of the two-year cycle of the 101st of, the, of those 140 churches that we planted, 23 of those 140 churches had already planted second-generation churches. Okay, So we're talking short-term missions that have a long-term impact. And that's another, I would love to have another opportunity to, to talk to you about the fact that the way that people do church planting, there's different ways to do church planting. And I think that as stewards of God's resources, we have an obligation 
to assess and evaluate the effectiveness of our ministries, okay? Um, Because if we're not wise in how we use the resources God gives us, he'll take those resources from us and give them to somebody else that's going to use them wisely, right? So I think it's good for us, even as Baptists, to sit back occasionally and assess how effective are the programs that we're doing? And is there a better way that we could do this? A better way, a more effective way that we might even be able to achieve more success for the kingdom than we are now, okay? I'll just give you a, just a quick little example. And, and I don't say this to, to belittle anybody. I just say it to give you an example. You said earlier that there's 3,610 missionaries on the mission field right now in the IMB, right? Well, you know, in 2020, those missionaries led... 144,322 people to Christ, according to their own statistics on their website, okay? Now, that's over a year. Those missionaries are there full-time, right? So Annually. Annually. So for that whole year, you had 3,610 missionaries led 144,322 people to Christ. What's that come out to salvations per missionary? I'm not a calculator, Mike. 90, I know I said I was good at math. 39.98, just under 40. So that means in an entire 12-month period of time, each missionary averaged winning 40 people to Christ. Over a, over a four-year period, okay, um, I had 41 missionaries go with me on short-term mission trips, working with local nationals, Okay. 41 American missionaries go with me uh, on mission trips. And those 41 missionaries were responsible for leading 15,817 people to Christ. You know what the average per missionary? And now, they were there for two weeks. Not 12 months, two weeks. The average is 386 conversions per missionary. And, and that's just one, I mean, I could, we could talk about other statistics if we want to. I'm just saying there's, there comes a time when you have to sit back and go, what are we doing? Is what we're doing effective? At some point in time, you've got to step back and look at it and go, what is the most effective way that we can take these limited amount of resources we have and get the biggest bang for our buck for the kingdom of God? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And if we can mobilize the church and go out and win people to Christ, okay, cheaper with more greater success than we can by putting permanent missionaries in country, then why aren't we doing that? Why don't we do more of it? But it's a lot easier to say, well, I give my tithes to the cooperative program and they're responsible for all that. So, you know, uh, this is let them do it. No doubt about it. There is work to be done. So Paul, why don't you wrap us up here? Short and sweet. You ready? Go ahead. With the kingdom mission, the ministry will glisten. (laughs) My gosh, Paul. Well, that's going to do it for today. Paul, you are the man. The kingdom mission, the ministry will glisten. This has been episode 12. We want to thank Mike Nelson for coming on board and helping us out today to talk about the kingdom mission. As always, for Paul Chapman, I'm Roman Hamilton. We're out of here.